This episode is sponsored by the Adoption Connection Village, a place where you can connect with other adoptive moms who get it and be surrounded with support so you know you're not alone. We are really excited about the village because adoptive and foster parenting really brings unique challenges to families and a lot of people around us don't understand. And so we need to be surrounded by people who get us. Yes, that isolation is really the breeding ground for shame and guilt. And, you know, both of us have been to these dark places. I mean, I don't think either of us could have anticipated what this journey would cost us in our relationships, sometimes even with friends and family. It's very hard for people to understand what we're going through. Absolutely. But we do get it. And we want to have a special place where we can really connect in a much deeper way, as close as we can to actually be in person. So obviously, we can't all gather around Lisa's Kitchen Island, but we have created something called virtual coffee chats. And these happen over video chat. And it's a whole group of us. And it's been really, really fun to see your faces, get to know your stories and connect with you from on a much deeper level. We do these coffee chats in the village three to four times a month. And we focus at least one of them a month on specifically the challenges of teens and young adults, because we have heard from you guys that that is a space that needs a little extra TLC and support. So the village is for you if you feel like you need more people in your life who understand you, you crave authentic and intimate community, and especially if you don't have Facebook or you want to limit your time there, so you don't want to be in a group maybe that's based on Facebook. And I think the thing that's so important is that, you know, we know you are pouring your hearts and your souls into your kids, and maybe nobody is pouring back into you, but we want to do that. Besides the coffee chats, we have a discussion forum that's kind of like a Facebook group on steroids that really helps connect you with topics that are relevant to your story and folks who are local to you. We also release monthly premium content such as deeper dives into what connected parenting really looks like in real life. And there's even a monthly Enneagram connection video where we help you better understand yourself and your family's dynamics. The Village really is your one-stop shop for personalized support. We want this to be accessible to as many parents as possible. So it's just $24.99 a month. There's no commitment. You can cancel at any time. Go to theadoptionconnection.com slash village to find out more or get started. Welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it and we're here for you. Hi friends, welcome to episode 95 of the Adoption Connection podcast. Yes, hello. We're so happy to be with you today. Today we're going to listen in on a conversation that Melissa had with fellow adult adoptee Sarah Easterly. And Sarah is mom to two tenacious daughters and the daughter of two amazing moms, both her adoptive mom and her birth mom. She enjoys supporting other mothers in their journeys and has a passion for helping others understand the often misunderstood hearts of adopted children. Yeah, so I really love how Sarah told her story, and we get to explore a little bit about how to handle loss and also how to handle big fears that our kids have um, 
We recorded this during the time of the pandemic, but she also talks about other experiences she had as a child and how she just had a lot of fears and how she talks about how she thought that that might be related to some of her adoption loss. And she shares some really practical tips towards the end that I think will be really helpful to y'all. So here's my conversation with Sarah. Sarah, welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So you are an adoptee, and as we've mentioned numerous times here on the podcast, we really value having as many voices from the adoption triad or the constellation, as there's a lot of pieces to folks who are connected to adoption here on the podcast. Of course, Lisa and I make up all three parts of the, of the triad between the two of us. And so I'm just thankful that you're here to share your perspective and your story, because as we know, we've all as adoptees had different experiences, different stories, different thoughts. And um, I just am really excited to bring yet another story and perspective to our audience. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm really happy. I respect your podcast a lot. There's so much great information here and I'm just happy to be a part of it. Thank you. So take us back to your first memory. Do you remember when you realized you were adopted or do you remember being told? I do remember being told I was nine years old. Um, and, um, my mom sat me down and explained it. Um, it's interesting because I, she has said that she told me before. And so looking back now as an adult, I wonder if that, um, was the first time it really sank in developmentally that I understood what it was. Um, I don't remember what preceded that exact conversation. I remember it was a little bit turbulent. And so I think that it may have been coinciding with some teasing from kids in the neighborhood who may have kind of used the word adoption and um, your mom didn't want you sort of thing. And um, that it really kind of upset me and I needed more answers. Um, it was around the same time that I grasped no Santa Claus. It was just kind of all the magic of childhood. Oh no, um, melting away yeah. all in one fell swoop. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you remember feeling? I mean, obviously being teased about being adopted probably didn't feel really great. Um, do you remember thinking like that makes a lot of sense? Do you remember being surprised? Kind of what was wrapped up in this understanding now? Um, I remember, I remember being really hurt, you know, really hurt. Um, you know, I, I felt that relinquishment and that, um, kind of being unwanted by my first mother, um, my birth mother, I took that really hard, but I internalized that. So I didn't, um, I didn't always speak that out loud. Um, I did in one pivotal time when I was cleaning my room, um, just kind of uncharacteristically, Um, and I write about this in my book, um, this scene that throwing, I was picking up up clutter and I found I couldn't throw away this broken watch that I had. And it made me think, why would my birth mother have given me up? She just threw me away and tossed me away. And, um, so it was definitely a lot of sadness. Um, so much sadness that I would be speaking that because I kept so much so private, um, so much of that turmoil. And I really did after that day, I went to my mom kind of crying for answers that day. Um, and she said, you know, things that, you know, from the head make sense, um, about my birth mother's age and why she couldn't keep me, but there was still that kind of deep inside my soul feeling of, 
that I was rejected and I wasn't wanted by her. Um, and that I struggled with for a long, long time, very privately. Um, I mean, I think that's been the one interesting thing um, with having the book come out and people close to me and especially my adoptive family reading it. It's, um, it was so private that I kind of blindsided a lot of people who had no idea because they had this outer, outer face of, life is great. And it, and it really was, I mean, it was, I, I could hold both those things um, and keep one really secret inside. And the other was true too. The, ex, the external facing was also very true, but um, that internal pain was private and felt. Yeah. Was there something that you sensed from your adoptive family or what do you think it was part of your personality to kind of hold some of that pain and some of those questions so closely? Oh, really good question. Um, yeah, I, you know, and I always feel so, you know, uncomfortable, you know, I don't want to do parent blaming because I don't think that's helpful, but I do think it's helpful to tell the truth too. And, um, to be helpful in the spirit of being helpful. I think there were, um, my, my adoption took place in 1972. And so it was a totally different era. It was the closed adoption era. It was a private adoption, a gray market adoption. And it was a time where there wasn't a lot of information for adoptive parents to, to have the, you know, to know how to, how to address relinquishment. And I don't think the word relinquishment was even in the vernacular um, at that time. And so, you know, kind of what adoptive parents at the time were kind of given some talking points of don't bring it up and, you know, focus on how special, you know, the baby's really special. And, um, you know, I think they're, my parents being, um, you know, religious came, came later at, in my childhood, but they came to a lot of, um, you know, God brought you to us. And it was very centered on their experience. And so because my side of the experience wasn't talked about or acknowledged, then I just kind of decided that was off limits. Um, I read the cues. Um, you know, I kind of made some assumptions because my birth mother wasn't spoken of that I, she was you know, promiscuous and, um, you know, kind of a shameful person. I just had these kind of filters that kind of the void filled in for me because they weren't, they weren't discussed in any way. There wasn't kind of a sharing and an honoring, um, through words of, of the woman who brought me life. Um, and so I think trying to go back to your original question here and I hope I haven't lost it, but, (laughs) um, yeah, yeah, just, I think, and I think you answered it well. And I, and again, not to, again, parent blame, because I think, especially in the era where we were both adopted, there was so fewer resources and we, we didn't know what we didn't know. And, um, you know, we've come a long way. Will you go back and just define for audience who might not be familiar, what a gray market adoption I hope I can define it, Um, but an adoption where the circumstances, you know, my adoption was in Montana, um, which was one of the last states to have regulations around adoption. And um, so I can speak to my, my case, I think gray market, I hate to use the word kind of illegal because it wasn't illegal at the time, but I think in today's day, it probably would be kind of on those. Questionable. Yeah. We just, 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the, in my case, um, the obstetrician who delivered me was friends with my adoptive uncle and he was kind of known in, um, the area as the go-to guy for unwed mothers. And so he kind of helped broker privately adoptions for people he knew who needed babies. Um, and that's how my adoption came to be, which I didn't know until my adult life when I was beginning to search for my birth mother. But I, my uncle just kind of <laughs> candidly told me that. And <laughs> it was, I mean, it probably answers a lot of questions though. It's probably nice to know in a era where there weren't a lot of records and there wasn't as much openness to be able to fill in some of those holes because, you know, we talk about telling our kids the truth at an age appropriate level as much as possible, because like you said, the things that are unspoken kids are filling in the blanks for themselves. And a lot of times the stories that they're telling themselves aren't necessarily true, but then that can be really impactful through your childhood. You've been telling yourself a story for a long time, you know, and it becomes truth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So as you're getting older and, and really processing how, can you speak to just how your identity as an adopted child kind of intersected as you formed your identity as just the rest of your person as you, you know, as we go through adolescence, we're kind of trying to figure out who we are. And so how did your adoption story play into that? Mm, What a really good question. I think I was always, you know, I was always a fearful person. So that definitely played into who I was, Um, you know, even with friends, um, you know, there was just kind of always that role I played, you know, going on roller coasters. I was the one who could, you know, would have to be pumped up really big. And then I might dash off and leave my friends. You know, I was, I was just very, very fearful. You know, I definitely was seeking to belong and looking for belonging. Um, And I think we all have that to some degree. I think that's an existential feeling, but I think as an adoptee, I think it, um, it was more prevalent maybe because of the adoption that I was always looking to belong. I was, always on the lookout for my birth mother. I had a lot of fantasies. Um, and I was, um, so much of this was unconscious, but I was constantly anyone who might be the right age to be my birth mother and the right look would be a potential birth mother for me. And I could take that fantasy pretty far. Um, and I did that up until, you know, when I was in an adult in my, um, you know, about to turn 40, I found myself, um, I ended up joining this women's group where the woman who was running it, um, I had just had decided in my fantasy brain that she must be my birth mother. There were enough details that kind of seemed like they added up and, you know, in hindsight, no, they didn't at all. But, um, (laughs) you know, I just had enough to glue on to. And um, it really, you know, just a lot of that pattern of um, looking for belonging and looking for a mother, these mother roles to fill definitely shaped me in big ways. Yeah. And you talk about it in your book, you know, how it shaped your view of whether or not you wanted to even be a mother. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it sure did. I was really hesitant about it. Um, I just didn't like babies. You know, I just remember in my early twenties, coworkers would bring in their, you know, older coworkers would be bringing in their babies for viewings. And I was kind of, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, great. Get, get me away. And I think I just didn't want to face um, that preciousness that all babies have. Um, I think it was too painful for me to want to see babies as precious because it would have disproven 
that belief, speaking of beliefs, we just kind of fill in for ourselves. I had a core belief that I was not precious. I was unwanted and broken. And so looking at babies too close would have challenged that false belief. And so I was kind of running from it. I told, I was, you know, I wore it like a badge of honor. I loved telling people I was never going to have kids. And even my husband was really concerned because <laughs> he wanted kids. And, you know, sometimes even after having kids, he's like, "What? Well, you never, you know, and it's just like, yeah, I said that, but I never really meant that. That wasn't deep down in my soul. I definitely am happy um, to be a mom. I love being a mom. So, but it was just kind of outer kind of um, protective thing to not want to admit that and run from it. I think that's a good reminder that we self-protect pretty convincingly. And so you had the world convinced you didn't want to be a mom when really that was not your core longing at all. It was just this facade that helped protect some of your deepest hurts. And I think our kids say things to us a lot and they're very convincing and we start to believe them. Yeah. 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 They're so believable. They can. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Yeah. So at some point, what kind of motivated you to get really serious about searching deeper into your story, searching for your birth mom? It was a culmination of factors. Um, you know, one thing was that my adoptive mom had, um, an, uh, um, immune disease called polymyositis and she got a lung transplant and, um, a double lung transplant, uh, which bought her more time. It was a really scary time. Um, but we got more, more time because of the lung transplant and she had planted a seed kind of that she knew my birth mother's name and kind of after, this is after she had her surgery and she was, um, just almost like a, just all of a sudden it's this open topic. And I think she, she had things she wanted to say and, you know, adoption in our family was a subject we just didn't talk about very often. And so I think she came out of that experience um, where she had a, you know, it was a very um, impactful experience for her and wanted to start bringing that up a little bit. So she had kind of hinted to me that she, that she knew her name. And so that was the first kind of subtle thing. I, I said, oh, what was it, you know, and <laughs> casually. And again, this is like hiding from our adoptive parents. I pretended I, I'm, my mother had no idea. I really even, that meant anything to me because I put this big fake, oh, cool. You know, five minutes later, what was it, you know? And then I pretend to go to the bathroom, type it in really fast, you know? And my poor mother, you know, hadn't seen that I really, I needed that. Um, so it was just these unspoken um, unspoken feelings I had, you know, that was a shame for our relationship, but I wrote it down. So that was the first little seed. And then in the meantime, I had mentioned that women's group um, that I had joined right about the same time I had become a new parent and I had this perfectionistic, I'm going to get everything right and study and be like the perfect parent. And I'm going to, you know, my child, children will have nothing, you know, nothing's going to go wrong for them. I'm going to make sure I learn everything about child development. And so I started studying child development and this um, women's group that I joined it. I actually thought it was kind of going to a parenting retreat with the woman who had been facilitating some workshops and um, it turned out um, to be much more. And I talk about that a lot in the book. Um, It was, you know, essentially a conflict group. It wasn't good for me in the long run, but what it was good for 
was when I realized she wasn't my birth mother, it was, I was about to turn 40 and I had this moment where I was like, I have been just this realization. I've been unconsciously searching all my life for this mother, this fantasy mother. And I just can't keep going on like this. I'm just, it's not healthy and not good and not great to talk about it. And um, so that was kind of when I had my big wake up moment that motivated me to just grow up a little bit. (laughs) What was that search process like and how long did it take you to find out some of the answers that you were looking for? The name that my mom had um, was not, was a little bit off. And so that threw us to a situation where we couldn't um, find anything online. And it's interesting. I did my search in 2012 and things have come so far just in the last eight years um, because, you know, DNA, there were DNA, DNA testing, but I didn't go that route. Um, it wasn't as prevalent. Um, so we ended up hiring a detective. Um, and I think it was 24, maybe 48 hours. It was really fast. Wow. It was really fast. Um, and he came back and gave me a lot of information. Um, a big report and names and links and um, all kinds of details. And, you know, it was, it was interesting. There were two things um, that it it happened so fast um, that it was almost just like a, you know, tsunami washing over my adoptive mom and I, it was a lot for our relationship to hold in a very short period of time. And it was really, you know, good that it did um, happen that way, I guess, in hindsight, because um, it was only another couple of years and then my mom died. So my adoptive mom. So um, I'm glad that we had all that go through. We we weathered that storm together um, while she was here. Yeah. Did it, do you feel like it brought you closer? It definitely did. Eventually it was hard. Um, it was hard for a good while. And a lot of the reason it was hard was because of that conflict group. It was less about, um, about the searching, but more about the conflict group, um, and where my heart had gone because I kind of did that. And then I was really still, um, immersed in this group and, my mom sensed this, she sensed an abandonment and she had her own abandonment wounds that she came by honestly. And so she tended to be just, um, the word jealous just has such a negative connotation, but um, she was envious that so she, she got very possessive of um, even calling my birth mother, the word mother in it. Um, you know, she, I'm your mother was kind of her, her feeling. Um, And so it was hard. I got really frustrated with having to convince her that there was no other word. You know, it just, it got really hard. I had to create some space. Um, My creating space was really hurtful to her. Um, But in the end, it really did bring us a lot closer, Um, really close. And I mean, that's what my book is about is just the attachment with my mom and um, finding our way together. And it kind of, culminated in closeness while she was dying, which um, is heartbreaking, but it's also looks super special. So heartbreaking in that it took so long. What would you say to adoptive moms who are feeling probably some of the same feelings that your mom was having about 
this tension and this possessiveness of, you know, I, I raised you, I did all the work, I put in all the hours, you know, I'm the mom. And, and can you talk from your perspective as an adoptee who now holds these two mother figures in your life, what would you want to say to adoptive moms who have children who also have this birth mom sized hole in their heart in terms of, you know, what that means for their roles? Yeah. I think just making the room for it. Um, you know, one thing I, I, um, I, in my quest for <laughs> parenting information and I've been studying with, um, you know, attachment and child development with the Newfield Institute for about 10 years now. And one thing I like this analogy is, um, that Dr. Gordon Newfeld says is that when, you know, you think of a toddler and when you are, you know, they're asking to be carried and you're constantly saying, no, you're old enough. You can walk, you can do it. They almost become obsessed with that. They get obsessed about being picked up. Um, and I think it can be the same for the, the birth mom relation, that relationship for the adoptee with the birth mom. If there's no room for it, it can become an obsession. And, um, And so I think that's where that fantasy kind of took off for me and got so much power. And so I think it's in everybody's interest just to make room for that relationship, um, to just take away, diffuse some of that power and that energy, you know, make room for it because there, there is, well, and again, this is where I want to be careful. I don't want to speak for all adoptees, but the loss is there on some level, uh, whether felt or not. Um, There was, you know, the, the, Dr. Neufeld often says, you know, there's an invitation to exist in my presence. And what, when there is no invitation to exist in another's company, that's when there's trauma. And so I love how he distills it so simply. Um, But we, you know, as adoptees, that's, that happened, you know, there wasn't an invitation for whatever the reasons, noble, great, it doesn't matter, but there wasn't a felt invitation at some point you know, just, I mean, recognizing that for the adoptee that that's there and um, just, you know, making room for it. And it doesn't need, you know, it's not always feasible if it's a closed, if it's closed adoption or, um, you know, situations where it can't be a relationship. It doesn't have to even be a relationship. It can be as simple as just, oh, your birth mom would have loved this about you. You know, she, I bet your, your birth mom would love, you know, seeing this about you, or I wonder where you get that from. I wonder if you get that from her, just some subtle, subtle things like that, that I think um, can go a long way, a lot longer, even if they seem really innocent and simple, they can go a long way for an adoptee's heart who just might have some big feelings inside that are being held in close. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think it's the same with a lot of parenting things. The more we hold on to something, the more it kind of grows in power, even for our older kids, you know, we went through a really rough season and we did find that it was in the letting go that they were able to come back. And so I think, you know, what you're saying resonates with that season that we had with our kids. Um, And it wasn't that they were even pushing away for birth family. They just were pushing away for independence of some sort, but I think you're right. You know, it gives it so much power when we hold it so tightly. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And I feel that as a parent too, you know, we've got middle school looming and I can feel myself wanting to hold that, you know, <laughs> but yeah, it's just like this natural parental thing we have to do. Yeah. And we may not want to. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the life of a, of a fearful kid, one who has 
a lot of spoken fears. I'm afraid to go to bed. I'm afraid of the dark. I'm afraid of roller coasters. And how much you think that was because of early abandonment? How much was personality? Um, and then maybe we can jump into just kind of practicals. Like what would have been helpful to you as that scared little girl? Yeah. I mean, I was always the scaredy cat, scared cat, you know, I really was, um, you know, um, and yeah. And usually vocal when you say that, it makes me wonder, I think a lot of it was not vocal, but I think it was, it was probably vocal. Uh, I'm sure my parents knew <laughs> everybody knew, you know, everyone knew how scared I was all the time, you know, fireworks shows, I'd be buried under the blanket, you know, it was tor- it was torture to be watching, you know, fireworks. Um, you know, thunderstorms, tornadoes. I grew up in Colorado. And so there were like afternoon all summer long, every afternoon, pretty predictably there's thunderstorms and then a lot of tornado warnings. And, um, I think what was influenced by my adoption, um, that piece of it was this feeling that, and I wouldn't have had the words for this. This is adult words overlaid on my childhood experiences, but, I've already lost my first family and now my family's going to die. Um, I'm going to lose my parents. Um, and so for me, one thing that was really powerful, um, was, and it turned into just decades of nightmares was tornadoes. Um, and this feeling that I could never get my family to come down to the basement during a tornado. And I, I was <laughs> raised in this family where they they just didn't get afraid, <laughs> Um, they were unaffected. And so of course now as an adult, it's like, okay, I think that, you know, it's, I can appreciate that, but it was really hard as a child because it, 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 um, you know, I know this is a buzzword right now, but there was a way it was kind of felt like gaslighting, you know, when I'm seeing tornado warnings on the news, you know, flashing and we hear, we lived by a golf course where we would hear the sirens and I was begging them, please, let's go down to the basement. And they're going about their business. It was a form of not recognizing the storm outside. Um, so I think that was an adoption thing. And then it just triggered more adoption things because it's like, okay, I can go down by myself mm-hmm. all alone. I'll be taking care of me. But who's to, who's taking care of my family? They're gonna, I'm going to lose them. There's just a lot of kind of wrapped up adoption stuff um, that you know, I can even like that visual of the tornado is perfect because it's just the swirl of emotion. I'm going to lose my family. I'm going to, I have to take care of myself. No one else is going to take care of me. I'm all alone. You know, that just kind of these not true, not always true, but um, beliefs that I could tell myself. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. What would have been helpful? What would you say to parents who are parenting children with a lot of obvious anxieties? I believe that we're all parenting children with a lot of anxiety. And of course we're recording this during the quarantine. So I think that's kind of all on steroids. I think a lot of our kids' anxieties don't always show in the way that we're looking for it. But if our kids are clearly fearful, what would you say to parents in terms of what are the ways that those children can be seen and heard, comforted? Yeah, I think, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, And of course, you know, like you say, I mean, you know, my kids come with their anxieties as well and things um, that I have to look, look through as a parent. So um, just kind of switching gears to that. I think um, age age and developmentally appropriate, the truth, you know, Um, even just thinking about the pandemic that we're going through right now, um, 
you know, if I were a child right now going through, going through this pandemic, it probably to me wouldn't feel that different from the tornado warnings and everything else. What would make me feel comforted is to be present with my, have my family there and with me. Um, first and foremost, it's those attachments and feeling that they're there. Um, so does that mean, you know, the, you know, probably would have helped me just to have my mom just wrap me up and go to that basement and just say, here, I'm here and we're okay. You know, we are okay. And I'm here for you and we're going to be okay. And the truth, you know, that it, there is, there can be scary, you know, with the, this, with coronavirus, it's, um, it's real and it is, it is scary. It's not imagined. Um, and what you're experiencing is valid and I'm here and you're safe and you're going to be protected play can go a long way too. Um, you know, it's so important. Um, you know, just sad, making room for just even just generally speaking, even just, you know, fear and anxiety can be a sign of other things going on and grief and sadness. And so I know just kind of one thing that, that I've always had a bent toward is sad books, sad movies, um, you know, Charlotte's web, (laughs) you know, all the childhood things that were really wonderful for me because they were outlets for my emotions to get those emotions moving. And so I think it doesn't even have to be direct about whatever these fears are, but you can just drain feelings through other, other, other avenues. I mean, I'm a huge children's book. I do children's book reviews and I'm a huge believer in just the power of children's books. And, um, I think sad books, that's what we're doing right now in our, our family right now is lots of sad, sad and some alarming. Um, my daughter loves World War II and uh, um, kind of scary, alarming books, but I think it's um, a way for her to just kind of access scary things happening to other people. Um, it's a time that was real. And so there are real people who survived these big, um, really horrible situations. And Uh, you know, then by way of reading the book, you're reading about a hero who survived and is okay. You can see that resilience. Um, So I think just going about it that way and in a more sleuthy way, rather than addressing the fears head on can go a long way. I think that's so wise. I think some of our best parenting moves are those like backdoor solutions where we're not taking on something directly with our kids, because I feel like that just hardly ever goes well. by experience. So I appreciate that advice. And it's a little counterintuitive, right? To lean into some of those big feelings. My tendency would be to let's think happy thoughts, you know, let's watch the hallmark things, the things that have happy endings. And so your advice to use play, use story to give an outlet, kind of an indirect outlet for, for big emotions is really wise, I think. So thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. And, you know, I have to say, I'm doing that for myself right now as an adult. I mean, I just intentionally watched the first 20 minutes of the Pixar movie up the other night because I could just, you know, work in such close quarters and I was just getting, you know, and there's been so many losses and so much fears right now for all of us, kids and adults. And so I had to take my little time out. I knew that that movie always makes me feel my feelings and dream yeah. <laughs> Like I only the first 20 minutes and then, you know, I turned it off and I was a lot softer the next day. Um, so what are those things that do that for the kids too? And there are some kids who 
you know, actually my daughter is one of them who, you know, any, you know, she won't watch horse movies, won't watch dog movies because she knows they're going to make her cry, you know, (laughs) 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 but laughter is good too. We had a day the other day where my youngest is super sensitive. We just watched, um, we binge watched for a full hour Holderness family videos. Oh yeah. I just found those recently. They're hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So just moving emotions, moving emotions would be huge, I think. Um, and, you know, one other thing, one other thing I was um, thinking about when I said the word resilience is, and I think um, I learned this more as I age, but just adoptees are incredibly resilient people. And I don't think we always think of ourselves as resilient, but we are because we've survived. I mean, we we often tend to focus on this, you know, I have a mentality where I just naturally gravitate to the losses and the sadness and the grief. I'm a four Enneagram. Um, so I'm focused on the past, but, um, but we like don't give ourselves credit for how resilient we are. And I think that's something to even just, you know, how can we instill that strength and let our kids know how strong they are? You know, they have survived whatever they needed to survive, whatever that was in their past that brought them to, you know, saw them in a circumstance of adoption. And so just, you know, helping them see their strengths, helping them see how strong they are and see um, that they, that they can survive. They've survived worse and they can survive. I think that's, I think that's wise. We are Enneagram fans here at the Adoption Connection. And I think that is also important. I think you know, we always start by saying every story to each his or her own, but also recognizing that our that there are very different personalities and we view the world through very different lenses with different motivations, different core fears, and knowing, digging into our kids and their personalities and, and starting to learn what that can look like can help give us a lot of wisdom into what will help our child because of their particular lens on the world process, whatever big thing is going on, whether it be, you know, new revelations about their adoption story or current events, you know, a worldwide pandemic. And so I appreciate that you've shared that and just done that work because, you know, I know from my study of the Enneagram, what comes with being a four and, you know, like you said, focus on the past and to know that you have a child who's focused on the past is helpful in how we speak to them versus a child who might be future focused, you know, where you need the time and the space to process all the things that you're remembering, thinking about and wondering about the past. Conversely, I'm a seven, so I'm a future gal. And (laughs) so I think I want to know what's coming next, you know, and, and there's so many beautiful ways that we can help our kids understand those things about themselves and, or even understand why, you know, you may have so many questions about the past and another child might not. And so I, I, I appreciate that. And that's, um, we're going to do more exploring of that here at the adoption connection soon. But, um, so I'm, that makes me excited when, when people mention the Enneagram, just because I think there's so much insight and wisdom that comes with that about ourselves as parents and how we react to our kids, but then also our kids. 
Yeah, absolutely. And one thing you were just saying um, made me think of another thing that I say with caution, but I think giving our kids words um, and gives them consciousness, you know, I mean, I think that's, that is what's so great about the Enneagram is that it gives words to things that we may not have words for. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's what I like about the Neufeld material as well. It's the same thing where things that, you know, like these dynamics that we all have that have, and then you have now consciousness because you've got a way to talk about it. Um, I think it can be kind of slippery with kids sometimes um, where we can project too much on them um, or we can, it's a temptation anyway to, to say too much about what they're feeling and not leaving the room to um, see it and watch it unfold. But I think it's so helpful too. And I would have loved so many just different words for different things. I would have loved to have that growing up just to, Oh, that's kind of what a thing I do. You know, <laughs> I t- right. Right. Yeah. And we don't want to yeah. pigeonhole our kids, you know, with personality types or numbers, especially when they're, you know, ever really, but especially when they're really young, so there's so much that's changing, but I think you're right. There is this like both, and we don't want to pigeonhole, but the words give us so much and the possibilities of, you know, I wonder if he sees the world this way, you know, I wonder if that's why, you know, we're having this, conflict or, you know, why I don't understand this thing, but I wonder if, if they're seeing the world, you know, from a different personality lens. And what's so great about that too, I think, um, with them, you know, kids having some sense of this is it normalizes feelings too, even if it's not the feelings they're having, like it normalizes, gosh, like, I mean, even just, I remember when I first came across horoscopes, you know, I had a brief thing where I really got into horoscopes in my young twenties, but just, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one, you know, just learning that you're not the only one. And that's, what's so great about the Enneagram too is, well, this is a thing, you know, Yeah, (laughs) there's a whole bunch of people. (laughs) weirdo me like this is a thing like there's a whole bunch of people who do this like who have this bent and so it takes some of the like we can be so prone to shame adoptees and force you know um you know so it takes some of that shame out to just okay well this is just what I've been given this is just who I am and it's not something's wrong with me something's not grossly wrong with me it's something that's there so how wonderful what a wonderful gift for children to grow up knowing a lot of these things and not internalizing that and writing their own stories about it. Like you said. Yeah. I love that. Well, Sarah, you have done so much work and you bring so much wisdom and graciousness to this conversation. I'm really appreciative of your work in the world and your willingness to speak about your story as, you know, just bringing another voice to the table and thank you so much um, for your book Um, and for spending the time here with us at the Adoption Connection. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I loved a lot of things about this conversation. I I think one thing I found particularly kind of tender and interesting was her relationship with her mom and and sort of how it ebbed and flowed in the openness and, and not of talking about adoption. And it was just so interesting to me. And I appreciate her sharing that. And, you know, she does talk about the fact that she's written a book about her experience. Do you want to tell us about that, Melissa? Yeah, Sarah's book is called Searching for Mom. And so if you love a great memoir and want to hear a little bit more about Sarah's journey um, and her relationship with her mom and the ways that it ebbed and flowed, and I think it's just a great reminder that these are just not 
neat and tidy things that all of the relationships and the stories, a lot of them at least around adoption are beautifully messy. Yes, they definitely are. So you can find Sarah at her website, which is just sarahesterly.com or on Instagram as Sarah Easterly author. We'll have those in the show notes so you can find them easily as well as a graphic that she provided for us titled Ways to Help Fearful Adoptees. And also we'll have a link to her book so you can get that as well. You can find all of that at theadoptionconnection.com slash 95. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.